Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. To say that Mark Barrett has had an atypical journey to the position he now finds himself in would be underselling it enormously. His first major move in music came as ambient drum and bass producer Future Loop Foundation. Barrett released a trio of albums in the late 90s under the alias and was the first artist to perform drum and bass live on the UK's Radio 1, a byproduct of the great lengths he went to in order to differentiate himself within the scene. However, Barrett said he always was treated as an outsider within drum and bass circles and eventually became involved in Berlin's down-tempo scene after moving to the city in 1999. Although he continued releasing and making music throughout the 2000s, a large part of the decade was spent writing music for television and commercials and eventually helming a highly successful music consultancy company. Barrett almost ran himself into the ground with the venture and decided eventually to relocate to the Uruguayan coast. It was there he began International Feel, a label he says that was born of a determination to do things in a certain way. The label's since become a bastion of high quality Balearic music and the home to what at the time represented DJ Harvey's first solo material for a decade. Barrett's work ethic and exacting personality have been the defining factors in all of this, and both were abundantly clear when we sat down for this conversation in Berlin late last month. you've been through a few what you might term as different phases in your yes. time with music but I wanted to start with um Future Loop Foundation <laughs> I'm sure you did I just wondered if you could talk to us about how the project came about and when the project came about and that kind of thing it was very funny actually yesterday I was looking on Resident Advisor and and I saw that Bookham was putting his his catalogue digitally um and I, re- I had a really strong kind of flashback to going to the, the warp shop in Sheffield. That's um, uh, Bookham's Good Looking. Yeah, Bookham's yep. Good Looking Records. Yep. And, 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 and coming out of a period, I guess in the early 90s, of listening to a lot of ambient music, and there was a whole kind of ambient movement at the time with everybody from Chill Out and Die to The Orb. And, and it kind of got so crazy that, that you know, Mixmaster Morris, who is quite a anti-establishment figure was actually on the front cover of DJ and it's a bit like when the Prodigy were on the front cover of Mix Mag and you know it felt like the scene had, the ambient scene had got so far then and blown up and it was getting commercial and this is way before the sort of 07 chill out phase 
um, and I kind of lost lost interest in it. I mean, there were certain threads, if you like, that that, that still appeal to me to this day. I mean, Steve Reich would be the, probably the main one. And then all of a sudden, I started hearing the early, let's call it ambient drum and bass, which was, you know, pioneered by Bookham and the Speed Night, and I kind of got very heavily into that and would go out and bought the entire good looking back catalogue from Warp in Sheffield when they had a record shop um, before they moved down to London. And, I, and Future Loop Foundation w was really coming out of that good looking sound and being totally and utterly inspired by it because to me it was just ambient music with breakbeats which was kind of the perfect blend. And that's really what kickstarted it. Kickstarted a sort of very creative period for me as a musician having got a little bit laconic because I'd got a little bit bored with ambient and, and so on and I just wrote and wrote and wrote um, for a long period and that formed the first Future Loop Foundation album which came out in 1996. Okay and was there much of a, a drum and bass movement slash scene if you like in Sheffield? Not really. I mean, at that stage, it was very much London-based. It was based around speed, and, you know, there was this little cabal of the big DJs and the metalhead scene and Alex Reese coming through. And I was, was very much aside or ostracized from that scene because, you know, I wasn't from London and I didn't have certain pedigree and I hadn't come up and done certain things. and. And it really was a little bit like that. I mean, one of the things that really pushed Future Loop Foundation on after that first album came out was playing live. Because I was really, you know, there was Ronnie Size doing it, but because he'd had such a successful album and it was on Talking Loud, he'd got a very big budget and he'd got, you know, the, a seven or eight of them and a full band. I was kind of doing live drum and bass, like Orbital with the Elisa's sequencer, and it was just me on stage kind of, trying to create a lot of energy by jumping up and down and getting shin splints. And um, and I was actually, there was one in the jungle at the time, which was a BBC drum and bass programme, which was produced by a guy called Wilbur Wilberforce. And he, I, I was basically the first live session, the first live drum and bass on Radio 1. Um, and I remember going to do it in the sort of quite iconic Media Vale studios in London and, I think it went out live with the very small mid small sort of time delay. And the two things that I remember are firstly, my main keyboard blew up the day after and I was so relieved that it was like 24 hours later. And the second thing I remember was the amount of threats that he got for putting me on, on Radio 1 as the first live drum and bass because I guess to a degree of the colour of my skin, of the fact that I was totally aside from the scene because I was signed to a, a very different record label and the fact I was from Sheffield and 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 he he I, I don't know the exact details but he got a lot of grief for, for putting me on um, which kind of shows you the insecurities that permeate throughout a lot of society I guess to this day you know I chose the, the route I took which was with a record label called Planet Dog which was when I signed to them, just coming to the end of a crest of a wave and the backlash had begun. And, you know, there's all kind of crusties and dog on strings and travelers. And, and the reason that the backlash had started was because they'd been so successful. I mean, if you look at 
their acts like Banco de Gaia and Eat Static, they were selling 50,000 albums on an independent, which, which is, you know, in today's market is quite unbelievable. And, and even my album sold, you know, a couple of tens of thousand, which at that point seemed pretty achievable ongoingly. Nobody had kind of seen what was coming 5, 10, 15 years down the line. And the reason I took that decision to sign with Planet Dog was not a, are they trendy, are they cool, are they not, are they, not, are they you know. It was more the case that they were selling albums. You know, I had a lot of interest at the time. Um, I can't even remember the names and the people. One of them was Alex Reese's manager at the time. But they were offering three single deals. And I'd figured out pretty early on that in order to have a career, you had to sell albums. And that there were very few labels in the scene or outside the scene or independent dance labels in general that were consistently selling lots of albums. And I'd also figured out that if I actually did get the, the keys to the toy shop, there was no way I was ever going to give them back. And that's kind of been my mission. You know, I've been, if you want to call it a professional musician, uh, for what, 16, 17 years, you know, and I've been pretty industrious and, and blessed. And I kind of, what I mean is, I, you know, I've been, I've had some luck, I've had some opportunities that I've taken, but the, my whole mission in music, apart from the joy of making music and twisting a cutoff frequency knob on a synthesizer, is to stay, you know, and, and, I've, and I've managed to do that through a period of great flux and great change, and that, I think, is my greatest achievement. But that all started off with Future Loop and with the understanding that you've got to sell albums, you've got to sell records, you can't just froth up a little bit of milk in a cappuccino cup and hope to maintain a career for anything longer than a few months. And it's very interesting if you look, the main difference between now and then, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and the main difference is, is this, that in those days you sold records and that's where you earned your money. And the, the live side was a shot window for selling records and you broke even. I did a massive amount of touring and never really earned a penny from it, you know, and you had some disasters like, I remember once doing a check tour um, and my entire profit in inverted commas was wiped out by an overzealous checking clerk that, that charged crazy amounts of excess baggage because in those days it wasn't a laptop. You were traveling with six or seven or eight flight cases and when you're traveling on your own or with just you and a tour manager, you know, you've got to really get on the good side of the checking agents and hope they'll charge you 50 quid not 550 quid and if you look today you know people talk about the ongoing vinyl resurgence which is kind of where as a label international feel is kind of intertwined with i guess because you know we're, we're a vinyl centric label but i think there's a very big difference between what we're doing and people that are doing what i'd call 200 copy vanity runs with too cool for school hand stamped and what they're basically doing that for is as a, is it's a total flip they're using that as a reverse as a shop window for the DJing career and that's completely turned from when I started in the mid 90s when the live side was purely the shop window to sell the records just to take things back slightly, when did uh, things start to get easier for you within the drum and bass scene? Do you ever felt like you were you were being accepted? Or there no, was time I don't. You... Th I don't think they ever felt like they were getting easy. 
I, I remember playing an illegal rave in Birmingham and I remember looking at the bouncers who had CS gas canisters strapped to the thighs in like holsters thinking, Jesus. And I was on directly after Pesce. I was above him because the stage was above the DJ booth. And I remember sort of waiting to hit start when he was playing his last song. And, you know, I don't particularly believe in political correctness or saying the right thing. And to be honest, the looks I was getting, it was like, you know, if looks could kill, I'd have just been six foot under for the past 10 minutes. So I don't think I was really ever accepted. But I think to be outside the mainstream in whatever walk of life you're in or whatever you do is, is, is actually is the best place to be. You know, without sort of doing time travel and now jumping forward to today, it's very bizarre for me, having lived in Uruguay for three years in, in pretty isolated circumstances and now in the north of Ibiza in continuing isolated circumstances, to take a taxi ride through Berlin and see this incredible consumer culture, you know, where there's these signs and shops and lights and noises basically screaming, buy me, buy me, be me let's be cool, let's do that. And, and it's really quite alien to how I live my life these days. And, you know, I think I've always been a little bit like that. I always prefer to be outside of the circle. So it never really bothered me that I wasn't accepted, you know, by, by, by the drum and bass community. It never affected record sales, never affected plays I got because Wilbur Wilberforce at Radio 1 was always supportive. And... You know, ultimately, once I moved to Berlin for the first time and really got into that kind of, let's call it cafe vibe with Kruger and Dorfmeister, who were sort of, you know, I think people might see them now and not quite understand how big and influential they were when they first started out with their first EP and and their early remixes, even before the DJ kicks and the K&D sessions. And I, I kind of got bored with drum and bass, much like I got bored with ambient music. You know, I find it really strange for a band like status quo or acdc that just have the same sound i get really really bored and you know without jumping forward to the to, to what's happening today one of the reasons that international field started was for me to do multiple projects under multiple names because i get you know i get bored very easily and if you ask me who influences me today it's very different to maybe who did six months ago or who will in 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 six months time and I think you know in in the middle of my career I had a period writing film music and tv music and ad music and I'm really glad that I did because it teaches you to finish music and it teaches you to finish music in a disciplined way but the slight negative side to it is you become a sponge you know I remember once writing music for a kid's tv pilot and they wanted um basically a pastiche of the Richard X um being boiled thing that had just been big at the time and so you listen to that loads and you do it and and you become a a little bit like a sponge and so when i'm making music now i don't listen to music because it screws me you know i basically soak up everything and turn out a, a pastiche part two three four and five so you know by the time I got bored with ambient music and gone into the sort of ambient drum and bass and then dabbled a little bit with the sort of higher end jump up drum and bass and a little bit darker drum and bass, which was influenced by the first time I played live in Berlin at the end of the 90s and walked around this area. You know, I played at a place called Delicious Donuts 
and you know sort of in the shadow of the alex and the fancy tom and all of that and you know that whole kind of cold war connotation which i guess is a bit to do with how you know my age and you know i kind of got bored with that and bored with drum and bass so by the time i'd kind of left drum and bass and moved on to a sort of slower sound because i felt that once you untied yourself from the tempo drum and bass you had a lot more musical possibilities i didn't really even think about being accepted or not being accepted by the so-called drum and bass scene you know much the same way as an individual i don't believe in right or wrong i don't believe in duality duality is just a perception so whether i got ostracized or not by the drum and bass scene who gives a shit do you feel like there's a particular reason that the drum and bass scene has been so prone to closed-mindedness in particular? Um, I think it's kind of what I said earlier. I think the people that were in the Premier League of it, if you like, or in the Bundesliga of it when it started, or the godfathers of the scene or whatever you want to call them, let's be quite honest, obviously had insecurities. And maybe they'd had knockbacks in their earlier DJ stroke production careers, and they wanted to make sure it didn't happen again. But, you know, I just I just don't understand that. You know, I don't understand people that keep knowledge to themselves. I don't understand people that when they have the power to help other people, don't do it. I don't understand people that live in a negative way or live in darkness. I don't understand people that live an insecure life. And, and you know, I'm not going to put words into other people's mouths, but you can only presume that that's what it was why else would you be so guarded and act so bizarrely you know and it, it wasn't just me if you look what happened to dj rap and a load of other people they got either ostracized or they were in one minute and out the next but you know it never really it never really affected me i had a pretty good in inverted commas drum and bass career and i sold a, a quite a lot of records i got to tour the world and playing from the ten thousand people and get shin splints and jump up and down a lot and you know pretend I was the orbital of drum and bass and I had a you know I had a good time and by the time I'd moved here that period of my life was over you know and I think in honesty when anybody looks at the life it's almost like living seven eight nine ten lives in one and I look back at the drum and bass period much like I look back at living in Sheffield or being a school kid and they all look like different lifetimes and that's how I look at drum and bass. And, and, you know, I've not really thought about it for a long time. I'm very proud of the music I made. I think the first two albums in particular stand the test of time. The third one where I'd gone a little bit jump up, we, we can forget about. Um, but I think the first two, Time and Bass and Conditions for Living, are very, very good records. And I'm really proud of them. What got you from Sheffield to Berlin? Was that the transition? Oh, that's a, re that's a really kind of simple story. I'd done a gig here in Berlin. I went to do a gig in Prague and we were flying back from Berlin and we got on the plane and I sat next to a girl and I got talking to her and her grandmother was from Charlottenburg, although she'd been brought up in the Schwarzwald, the Black Forest, but then she'd lived most of a teenage and sort of early 20s near Brighton. Um, and then she just moved back to Berlin and we got talking and then we hung out on the phone for six months. And six months after that, I came back 
and played another tour of the Czech Republic. I was big, big in the Czech Republic for some bizarre reason. I think at one point I was second biggest dance selling artist behind um, behind Underworld. Um, and so I used to go to the Czech Republic a lot and she came and joined me on that tour and we got together and then we kind of had the long distance thing. She lived in Prenzlauerberg and I would come out every month and, you know, for a struggling musician, it, it's quite expensive in those days, a pre-Ryanair and pre-EasyJet to, to come backwards and forwards. And I remember I had a little Yamaha QY10, one of those handheld workstations that I'd try and write on. You know, there's no laptops powerful enough in those days. There was no iPads and it was impossible. And so it was really expensive and impossible to work when I was here. And in the end, I'd have probably procrastinated. She just gave me an ultimatum, which was move or bugger off. So I moved. And um, so I left Sheffield just after Easter in 2000. And the first time we were here, I was here for two years. And that was living in a, in a place on Prenslau Alley, next door to Peaches, ironically. Although I didn't know that till afterwards. <laughs> How was it in Berlin around that time for drum and bass? Well, it's bizarre. There were more Germans than, than there seem to be now, in just in terms of, of the culture. And it was not that long since the war. All right, it was 10, 11 years, but not as long as it is now since the war had gone down. It was a lot wilder, I think, than it is now. It was a lot more unknown frontier there were a lot more bars and restaurants and squats opening up and shutting down and opening up and dodging the police and it, it was a pretty exciting time and you know I'd kind of come to the end of the drum and bass phase in my head and, and really fallen in love with Kruder and Dorfmeister and I think that had something to do with the culture of Berlin at the time you know the sort of weed smoking sitting outside a cafe and you know, it's very different to being in Sheffield, you know, to go to a sort of uh, a brunch in Berlin on a Sunday in a really nice cafe, regardless of the weather and and sit down and talk to friends and have a smoke is is a very different thing than, you know, going to a, a fun pub in the north of England on a Sunday. And I think I was very, very, I don't know what the word would be, begeistered, starstruck by that culture. And the music at the time that went along with that culture was was that kind of Kruder and Dorfmeister sound, and I became incredibly um, enchanted with it. So I kind of flipped Future Loop Foundation from drum and bass, which I got bored with. I kind of felt I'd done everything. You know, I wasn't going to do a Goldie and do a 60-minute orchestral piece. Um, so it kind of, the move to Berlin combined with me getting a little bored with drum and bass as tempos combined with falling in love with Kruder and Dorfmeister all those things kind of melted together and I kind of went a little loungy. So were people going out in the city at that time to hear this music specifically? Yeah I mean I remember um, that Kruder and Dorfmeister played at the Pfefferberg in, in Prenzlauerberg I don't even think the Pfefferberg's there anymore and the queue was just something to behold. And it was minus 20. You had people selling whiskey shots to the queue and everybody taking them, whether they, you know, whether they were drinkers or not, just to stay warm. I mean, imagine sort of Berlin in January, minus 20, and you're, you're in a queue that makes the panorama bar queues even today look small. You know, and then you got inside and it was like a greenhouse. 
And so you've gone from minus 20 to about plus 30. I think probably 80% of people at that gig got flu for about a month afterwards. Um, and and so, you know, there was a whole Trezor scene and the techno scene and and that was very separate. But But I was much more, I think, you know, mainly because I came here with no German, with no friends, with no job, you know, sort of trying to maintain a, a career as Future Loop Foundation. And um, and the circle of friends that, that my wife had and that I got introduced to were into that sound more than the techno sound. And so I kind of just got very influenced by it and it just suited the mood, you know, that kind of smoky cafe afternoon. Um, you know, I often say as a musician that it doesn't really get as good as that two or three a.m. in the morning feeling with a red light on in your studio, a spliff burning in the ashtray, and the perfect eight-bar loop going round. Everything's downhill from there. The fact that you've got to finish tracks, master them, market them, get artwork, deal with miserable artists, and that whole thing, nothing really beats that kind of eight-bar loop going round and round. And I, and I think that, you know, from my point of view, I was much more drawn to that sound because of tempo, you know, having done the drum and bass thing that was so fast and, and techno was still pretty fast in those days. I was, that was the start of my love with not down tempo as a genre, but down tempo as in terms of slow music that I think, you know, pretty much I've kind of continued from that point on right down to, you know, the, the, the thing I'm just about to release. I'm, you know, I'd much rather listen to pitch down house music at 100 beats a minute. I even listen to house music at 120 now. I think, God, that sounds fast. How did you get into um, the television side of things in it originally? Well, is that something you were doing in Berlin? I was really, this is, I guess, where a little bit of the, of the look came in. I, I'd come to Berlin and I wasn't playing live anymore. And I was kind of struggling a bit financially, you know, and that was sort of masked. A little bit by Berlin because it's very cheap to live here and I mean it really came to a head for me I got offered a DJ gig in Gdansk for 50 the equivalent of 50 pounds so 150 Deutschmarks and it was like an eight-hour third-class train journey either way and I had to do it I was so skinned and I remember going there and going to the club and you know, all these Polish kids banging on the floor, wanting it faster and faster, and me like, oh God, and and then going out for for breakfast the next day with the promoter, and the club was still going on, and I just thought, I just this just isn't me, you know, what the f am I going to do? I'm really in a quandary here. I'm, you know, at that point, I'm thirty years old, you know, it's two thousand and one, and I'm skin. I can't, still can't speak German. I, you know, I don't have a job. And and I had a publishing deal that never really yielded anything. And then one day my publisher rang me and he said, listen, I've been introduced to a, a TV composer who's just got this massive contract to write a load of sports music for TV. Purely because of the volume of the work, he needs to bring in other writers. Are you interested? Um, because I've asked all my other writers and they're kind of, you know, a little bit nose in the air. And no, we don't, because people were still selling records at that point. People were still earning good money and TV music, you know, was didn't have the glamour of film music. And I think people thought it was a little bit beneath them. And I kind of 
jumped on it thinking you know i don't really have a choice at this point and and why not and and basically at that point we'd already decided to leave berlin um because my wife had had a little cafe that she'd sold we were going to go and live in the north of italy not advisable in retrospect but never mind and it just seemed like a job that i could take with me because it was in you know the early days of the internet when there were still modems and i jumped at it and it just went really well i did one piece and the guy loved it and then he started giving me two pieces a month and then it went up to i think four pieces a month and so i was getting paid a commissioning fee and i got to keep my own prs and i can tell you that i stopped doing that work 10 12 years ago and i still earn a pretty voluminous amount of prs every year from it 12 years on 10 12 years on so what sort of things were you doing well, initially, the initial contract was sports music. It was a program for ITV, which for everybody who's not in England is the sort of independent television channel that's not BBC. And it was the world football show or something like this. And it was on at like three o'clock in the morning. Um, but the thing was, if you look at ITV today, they pay different PRS rates dependent on the time of broadcast. So the middle of the night rates now are a joke. In those days, the night rates were the same as the peak time rates. It was like, oh, it was it was a ridiculous amount of money. And I, this show was a 40-minute show. It went out two or three times a week, and I was writing the majority of music for it. You know, I was getting PRS on, like, 20 minutes of music a week without any syndication. And then that that that's mainly where the income is today, um, coming in from overseas income still. And from there, I got asked to write for the VH1 Worldwide Fashion Awards. From that, I got asked to write music for whatever year it was, MTV's Worldwide VMA Awards. And a lot, I got asked to write adverts. A lot of stuff spun off from that. Um, and I learned to deliver on time and to deliver to a brief. You know, if somebody goes to you, okay, tomorrow at 12, we need <clears throat> an Afrobeat track. It's, you, you can't say, what's Afrobeat? Who's Femakuti? I've no idea. You've got to kind of very quickly get up to speed. And and, it, and and the disciplines I learned in that three or four year period are still with me today. Because if you read a lot of the music making forums, one of the biggest problems that people have is finishing tracks. I never have that problem because I had to finish or I didn't get paid. You know, I knew that if I had three weeks, sorry, three tracks to do in a week it was two days a track one day writing next day arrange one day write next day arrange and the same and because on the seventh day you delivered those three tracks then on the eighth day you would maybe fine-tune them dependent on the producer's wishes and and literally if you didn't deliver you didn't get paid and they were really pissed off at you and you lost the contract and at that point it had become kind of like a job you know basically i work like crazy one week a month on this and then the other three weeks were mine and i'd gone from no money and 50 quid dj gigs in gdansk to earning really good money within space of a year and then the prs came in and and you know it's been the gift that keeps on giving and you know and it's funny all the artists that, that thumb the nose up at it three years before were then ringing me going how do we get into this what do we do how do we get into this and i think i was literally the last almost the last person in through the door before everybody, you know, Ninja set up the sync department, every publisher, every independent label 
and publishers set up their own sync departments. And now, you know, if Nike want to do an ad, they're probably getting pitched to by 2,000 people. I was very lucky that I was, I think, more or less, the very last phase of people where there wasn't much competition, you know, and the, because people were still earning good money from the normal activities of a recording artist in, in our kind of world at that point, and they just thought it was beneath them. And three years later, the market had collapsed and CD sales had collapsed and vinyl sales had collapsed and the early internet sort of downloading was coming through and everybody was desperate for an income. And then three years after that, everybody had realized that it was very, very important to have that attribute or that string to your bow. And then they started to sort of organize themselves and and create environments where they could offer their music but when i was doing it there wasn't that and you know you once your music's out there it's out there i still get prs statements and it's you know it's everything from the Oprah room show to miami inc to the dog whisperer and all of these kind of weird things that, that you know you might get two minutes on the dog whisperer or 30 seconds but that's indicated across the world for a piece of music that you wrote in two days eight years ago is is quite nice when did you stop doing this type of stuff well i you know i've been very lucky that when one thing stopped another thing finished and it felt very natural at the time it didn't feel like i was forcing or looking so when i stopped playing live i moved to berlin when i was in financial straits this came along and then when this contract finished, which was after about three years, the, the next thing happened, and it happened very naturally. Um, you know, I, I, I've been very lucky in that aspect that I didn't really have to look for what's next, either vocationally within music or financially within music. It just kind of happened. And that was a three or four year period, then it finished, and, and I moved on to what's next. Which was? <laughs> the great big world of business um i i formed absolutely by accident a music consultancy company and it went ballistic and that took the next four years of my life and i was able to sell it um for a for a goodly amount as, as the victorian english would say and so so after the tv work the next three or four years were really taken up running a consultancy business within music that just even today it's like some kind of hollywood script how it happened and, and the roller coaster ride of it and what happened to me in that period it was just bizarre yeah i mean you you do almost look physically shocked even reminiscing on it yeah it's just i mean basically the same publisher i should buy him a crate of champagne the same publisher who had introduced me to the tv guy had introduced me to a label in six degree um in sorry a label in america called six degrees who are based in san francisco and they're quite a well-known world label and and they do a lot of nice artists they've released king brit and quite a few people and they were putting an album together of african of afrobeat sort of influenced stuff and asked me to contribute a track which i did and it got accepted and it's the same thing with the tv music once it goes out there you never know what's going to happen and what happened was that a hotel in Milan was putting together a compilation and um, 
they were looking for tracks and they'd obviously heard this track and they licensed it. And purely because we'd moved to Northern Italy and were an hour away from Milan, I went along to the CD launch and I met the manager and it was this uh, really nice hotel in the center of Milan with a beautiful botanical garden behind it. And I started thinking, if I'm going to keep DJing, this is the kind of place I should be DJing in, not Gdansk for 50 quid. So I said, look, can I DJ here after the summer's over? And he said, sure, but I'm not going to pay you because it's good for you and it's good for me. And so every Tuesday I used to go from the little rural American werewolf in London kind of village in the middle of nowhere in Italy and take two trains and get into Milan and get back very late in the night. And everybody kept saying, why are you doing this for no money? I just said, I have a really strong feeling something good will happen from it. And... Um, we built this night up on a Tuesday where we would get 1,500 people. And it was everybody from Berlusconi to the models, to the footballers, to the politicians, to the newsreaders, the film stars. And it just kind of became this really big thing. Um, and I'd started at the same time then getting um, PRS money. And I was in London one day and I saw this thing called an iPod. I thought, okay, what's that? And, and I thought, that looks pretty nice because I'd always used Apple computers I thought oh this is great I'm going to treat myself to one you know I've not bought a present for myself for many a year and then I incorporated it into the DJing uh, you know a little bit to show off and a little bit if you want to go to the toilet and you've got to get through a very small bar with 1500 people in it it's nice to have 10 minutes worth of pre-mixed or something music just in case you get stuck and and the manager of the hotel who is a very forward-thinking guy said this is interesting because this could be you when you're not here. And my first thought was, that's that's called Muzak. Um, and I said, yeah, okay, it could be. Um, and so we programmed some music into it, like what we call the morning playlist, afternoon playlist, early evening, peak evening, late evening. And at the same time, coming up, you've got Hotel Cost and you've got Buddha Bar and Cafe Del Mar when it was still good with, with Jose Padilla. Um, and and I just caught the zeitgeist moment and basically so if you, if you like they became a client and I started to provide music for them on an iPod and he recommended me to the Hyatt when it opened in Milan and I went and did them then I met one of the heads of Hyatt at the opening and he said oh I'd really like to work with a music consultant on all our hotels and then the guy at the other hotel, which was a Sheraton, said, uh, I've been asked to attend this, this conference of all Sheraton managers and we've all got to take an idea and I'm going to take this in as an idea. And so I'd gone, okay, I've got my little TV career, I've got Future Loop, and I've got two hotel clients now and, and that's pretty cool. One of them's not paying me and one of them is paying me. And let's say that was September. By Christmas, I got 80 hotel clients. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And I remember going to the Sheraton meeting and the head of Sheraton basically turned around to me and said, yeah, this is great. Let's start with 20 hotels. And me thinking, you know, it's like me saying to a 16-year-old kid that might have spent two days with acid on a computer going, right, you're about to go off on a world tour. Get yourself ready. You're going in a week. And I'm just like, what? is going on so the first thing i had to do was source 50 first generation ipods in milan the week before christmas 
and then get them back to our little house in our little village without getting mugged, raped and pillaged by Nosferati and Italian forces. And, and it just kind of blew up. And over the next two years, we, I say we, but it was me and one girl working for me, became the music providers for Hyatt Worldwide, Sheraton Worldwide, W Hotels, who of course everybody's much more aware of now because they've opened in London and Europe and there's Ben Turner who's robbed a bank and Richie Hawkins' manager, you know, working on brand stuff with them. But I was their original music consultant for years and years and years. And all of a sudden, I'm not making music anymore because I've got this business and I've no real idea about spreadsheets and Excels and tax and that oh so nasty word called music licensing. And, and I'm kind of, that two years felt like chasing a snowball down a hill that was getting bigger and bigger. The bigger the snowball got, on one hand you're going, oh, look how big the snowball is. On the other hand, you're going, oh God, it's getting bigger. It can't get any bigger. It can't. And you could never quite catch it. And it was just a crazy time. I mean, to give you an example, I remember once getting a call sat in Heinersdorf in Berlin going out from one of the Sheraton group going, we'd like you to go um, for a meeting to Bora Bora to discuss a new hotel. So I went Berlin, London, London, Tokyo, Tokyo, Tahiti, Tahiti, Bora Bora, four hour meeting all the way back. And it was just this bizarre roller coaster ride that kind of, <laughs> even now I, I can't quite believe it. It was just, you know, in a nutshell, I'm the guy, I suppose, that can claim to have put chill out music into hotels um, for right or for wrong. And I'm sure lots of people have an opinion on that. and I don't really care. Um, and it was just this bizarre ride where it went from one client that started by me asking to DJ to two to 300 clients 18 months later. And at this point, there's there's not really internet delivery systems for music like there are now and where you can have a little box that streams music in and you can update it automatically. At, at one point, I owned just under a 1,000 iPods and these would have to get continually shipped around the world. And, you know, you'd have a new hotel opening in Ho Chi Minh and you'd send their iPods and they'd disappear in customs. They'd go into customs and never come out. Or you'd have five iPods in a hotel in, Ni in Lagos in Nigeria overheat because somebody sprayed them with a chemical spray by mistake. And so that's what I meant when I said that the bigger it got, the more in a, in a bizarre way, more of a disaster it got because it meant more iPods going around the world and more iPods blowing up, breaking down. You know, the iPods were never designed for what I designed them to, to do. And then I wanted things that they couldn't do. I wanted, you know, proper cross-fading, proper randomization, volume leveling as we got kind of more. And it, they just didn't do this kind of thing. And staff would steal iPods or, you know, they would they would forget to change from the morning playlist to the afternoon playlist or, you know, I remember getting a call one New Year's Eve from a hotel in 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 Tokyo going, our music stopped, our music stopped. It's new, you know, it's like 10 minutes to midnight. Well, have you checked that there's an audio lead in? Oh, no. All right, thanks. You know, but every time that happened, because I really try and maintain with everything I do a very strong level of professionalism and passion, you know, it kind of cuts you a little bit when, when something goes wrong. And when you've got 200, 300 hotels 
that because they get demanded of so much by their clients, they, de- you know, they demand blood, kidneys and spleens from you, which is fair enough for what they're paying you. Um, then, you know, I, I just developed a bizarre sleeping pattern that I maintain to this day, because what I would do is I would sleep in the mornings, in the afternoons, I'd deal with Europe, in the evenings, I'd deal with America, and in the night, I'd deal with Asia, then go to bed at six and get up again at 11. You know, I really couldn't maintain it because I didn't have any good music delivery system. I had the iPods, you know, I'm now probably got 1200 iPods and and because you're so visible now, because you're representing Sheraton Worldwide, Hyatt Worldwide, Marriott Worldwide, W Worldwide, Radisson Worldwide, and on, and on, and on. And the music licensing laws are grey. You know it's not going to end well. You know, and at that point of perpetual insomnia, of iPod problems, of licensing problems, you know, of hotels, you know, this is a Hyatt in Cairo, yes. Well, the prince, the Saudi prince that owns us is coming next week. Can you put together a Celon Dion playlist for us? Because it's all he listens to. Uh-huh. And how am I going to get the iPod to you in the next five days, let alone buy Celon Dion? You know, or just, I remember being at a Hyatt in Philadelphia in August in the middle of a heat wave, buying Christmas music, you know, and, and trying to guess what kind of music Philadelphians would want at Christmas. And I just had to look for a buyer. And I was, I was, you know, again, I was fortunate. I keep saying blessed or fortunate or lucky. I'm, I absolutely believe that you make your own luck in life. And basically, I, I found a buyer for the company. And then I stayed on for two years um, to kind of do a gradual handover because so many of the relationships were personal. And then it finished. And I found myself with, a, you know, a healthy bank balance and a kind of void and that actually coincided with the end of our rental contract in Berlin. And so that madness was over, you know, and looking back on it now, I can kind of, the only real memories I've got from it is the passports. I went through passports like crazy and looking at all the stamps and you look at some of the journeys you did and it was just an absolute blast. And, you know, I, I, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about business and about people and how to manage people in business and you know i earned enough money out of that to to buy my my kind of freedom passport and that's what then coincided with leaving berlin and going to uruguay and starting international feel um why uruguay i guess my flippant answer is why not we 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 had a house in heinersdorf at the top of prenzlau ali in berlin and it was in five-year blocks, and we didn't feel like committing to another five years, and, and the eigentumer didn't feel like doing anything less. So we kind of thought, okay, we've, we've sold the business, we're kind of free, what do we need? Well, we need a degree of stability, you know, we don't want to move to a country that's got sort of political problems or big crime problems. Uh, we need good internet, it'd be nice to have good weather let's really cast our net. Australia looked too expensive. Um, New Zealand had got crazy quarantine for the cat, um, who, who um, you know, had kind of been with me from Sheffield to Berlin to Italy to back to Berlin. So I wasn't going to drop him into quarantine in New Zealand. Asia didn't, you know, I'd done a lot of work in Asia and a lot of traveling. I think if I was single, I'd go and live in Japan for a while. I'm very apart from the stupid 
activities with whaling and that kind of horrific stuff i'm I'm very drawn to japanese culture um but i don't think that was a serious consideration brazil didn't look too safe um argentina looked too corrupt and, and they kind of got what they deserve with christina kirshner right now that's my personal bugbear her um and 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 we kind of ended up at hodgson's choice with uruguay or chile and and so we went out there um for a couple of weeks a few months before the house contract had finished and um kind of liked it and thought well it's as good a place as any isn't it um and it was actually the, the weekend of my 40th birthday and so we went to buenos aires for the weekend and came back and bought a house which was in retrospect a little bit rash but at the time it just kind of you know i think one of the things that music consultancy business period taught me was there isn't such thing as a bad decision so why be indecisive so i'm a very decisive person i just go with my instincts at the time and it just felt like a good thing to do so that was august so we we bought a house we came back we left instructions for them to build the mother of all fences so that the cat wasn't going to get savaged by the local wild dogs um we applied for residency um which has become very useful these days to be a uruguayan resident even though i don't live there at the moment and we kind of hired a shipping container put everything in it and took a very long journey on in a snowy january with cat via you know madrid to to montevideo and on to punta del este and how do we get to international feel from from this point well i'd start making music again because i wasn't having to speak to music licenses or accountants or wayward assistants or hotels demanding the most bizarre things so i'd actually really started to um make music again i mean there is a sort of little bit that we've missed out which is towards the end but not quite at the end of the music consultancy i did make what is what is definitely the final future loop album and that was in 2007 and that was that's i guess the thing i'm most proud of in the whole future loop catalog because my cousin who's a a, a very kind of genius electrical engineer had picked that bug up young and in the 70s late 60s early 70s he'd started recording and he'd start recording family interviews and making home movies and this kind of stuff and then and then in 2005 or 2006 he digitized them all um and we all got a cd and a, and a dvd and i listened to these and just thought what a, a brilliant basis to make a record on you know my grandfather talking about um the second world war in sheffield when there was a sheffield blitz or when there were the dam busters practicing in the dams of derbyshire and they would come down into the village where he lived and you know it was just i'm a great believer without going too much off piste that one of the biggest crimes of modern culture and society is the death of oral history whether that's musical knowledge you know for example how to properly use a compressor rather than just twiddling a few knobs on a plug-in and i think family history i think this is there's been a detachment and it's a real shame that family history and oral history is not being passed down anymore whether that as i say is musical or family or natural cures you know we live in the world of, of big pharmaceutical companies and 
and governments have pandered to them and the medical industry that pandered to them and a lot of natural cures have been lost and that's a real shame and so i saw this as an opportunity to to use all those family recordings and make an album around it um which i did and that was the last future loop foundation album called memories from a fading hang on memories either from a fading room or memories of a fading room i can't remember which and it was a double thing with a dvd and, and a cd and each track was based around a different character so there was one with a radio interview with my father there was one with my auntie one with my grandfather my grandmother and my cousins i never put i never put the one with me on it because i sounded like such a precocious little shit even age five uh, I, in fact, I listened to that the other day and I thought, Jesus Christ, that nobody's ever going to hear that. Um, and and that, that did really well. I mean, that got used, that one of the tracks, I mean, the whole sound of that album was, I always call it, was like Brian Eno meets Boards of Canada meets Steve Wright meets Sigur Ross in, a, in an elevator to coin the Derek May euphemism and nick it and steal it and bastardize it. And, and and that did very well sync sync wise. I mean I got a lot of T V syncs off the back of that and ads and, and, and so on and so forth. Um and so I I had sort of towards the end of the music consultancy company um started sort of making music again and, and really enjoying it. And I've also missed out the two pop hits I wrote, but that is definitely another story for another day. Um, and so, yeah, I found myself in Uruguay and, um, you know, waiting for the shipping container, which, okay, it's not like waiting when I moved from England to Berlin and you're waiting for your whole studio. I've got a laptop with me now and I'm just waiting for the speakers and stuff. And, and I met a couple of local guys and we worked on a track, which was the very first international feel, um, release, which was called Rocha, um, which is actually a, de a department or state or county of of, of Uruguay, and um, and we did the track, and I thought it was a really really good track, and I just I thought I'm going to try and get a deal for this, and I'm you know pretty well connected. I just could not get a deal for it, and then I thought I got a deal for it, and then I'm not going to say which label it was. The label's accountant said, "Oh, we know we don't sign si one-off singles anymore. It's not financially viable," and I just thought, "What the?" fuck is going on with this industry where everybody you know cares more for the swedish house mafia than they do for real music and they care more for sausage waveforms and waveforms that look like shark tooths that have dynamics and and everything's becoming homogenized i just thought well i got to the point so frustrated and so pissed off i thought i'm going to do it myself and if i'm going to do it myself there's absolutely no point doing you know, hand stamped 200 runs and trying to compete with, you know, a 22-year-old kid that's wearing all the right clothes and living in Neukern. You know, when I first lived in Berlin, you didn't go to Neukern for fear of being attacked and and, and sent to hospital with, you know, with a, with a kick up your ass. And I just thought, I can't compete with that. I have no desire to compete with that. So the way that I will design muse, um, international feel is by making it super bespoke. So everything from the mix down, to the mastering, to the cut, to the 180 gram vinyl, to the hand-drawn artwork, to hiring an art director, 
you know, you know, and just trying to create this kind of very bespoke brand from the word go, where everything was qualitative and everything really had a timeless quality. And it, you know, somebody asked me when I did the last Future Loop album, the the, the sort of family memories album, what my goal was it from from it was, and one of the main goals was to create a record that somebody would pick up in the corner of a charity shop in 20 years time and wipe the dust off it and fall in love with it like I've done with certain records and and that was really the goal you know if I sum up what international feel is in a in a sound bite or a strap line or whatever everybody calls it these days it's to create things of timeless beauty or to create real things of timeless beauty um, in a binary world that was really the important thing to create things artifacts where the arts is important the music the mix downs important the cuts important how the artists are represented i wanted to create a label i've been on the wrong side of many many deals mainly never really individual deals mainly compilation deals where you just don't get paid you know and that's happened to a lot of people and and you know the big one at the moment that nobody seems to talk about is Café del Mar there's lots of us that made lots of music for Café del Mar that are owed a lot of money because they've not paid any royalties for four years but they still sell the records and I just find that unacceptable and even on a lower scale if you look at the majority of rip-offs that happen in our industry it's for 200 quid here a thousand dollars there is it really worth sullying your soul and really dirtying yourself for that small amount of money? I mean, at least if you're going to rip somebody off, do it for a hundred grand, you know, have some big designs. And so I just wanted to create a label where the artists were put first, where they were given, you know, a studio if they needed it, an advance that they could take time off work and make the music if they weren't in the music industry full time. You know, again, not crazy because I realised that the days of, of the first Future Loop album have gone where you can engineer a full-time career for yourself. Um, but, you know, to give them that that breathing space to make the music, then to give them a really great art guy in Phantom who, who was the art director to, to actually sit down with them and discuss, you know, what they want to achieve artistically with the art and just put the artist first and and to give them a spotlight so that, that you know it, it's a kind of great way of coexisting if i pick the right songs because what i am with international feel is three things i'm a curator i'm a bank manager and i'm a factory manager to handle the manufacturing side and if i do my curate curating job well then you know two things are happening in in synchronicity and in harmony the label brand is building and the artists are getting a little piece of spotlight, you know, which was obviously helped tremendously by signing Harvey. I'm, I'm not going to make any bones about that. And what they do with that is up to them. You know, if you take, I mean, the, the obvious one is somebody like Gono, who was, was a pretty big release for us, who was a Japanese producer. And he's had one release on us, which is now this September, it'll be two years ago. And I still saw in, in one of the big Japanese dance mags that he was one of their top artists of the year. And he's had a pretty good DJ career in Japan for the past 18 months off the back of that one track, which I think is great. You know, I'm not going to 
to say to people what you do with with your little piece of spotlight if we create it you should try and do a b and c that's up to them you know i would always say to them if you do get a biggish single and you can follow it up within six to eight months then the benefit of having that follow-up is immense and i said that to, to gono you know it's a shame that you haven't followed it up because if you had then you would have jumped up several levels i mean one of the advantages of the interconnected information society that we're in now is if you come up with a great track you can build a career off the back of it whereas before it was a little bit harder to do that because there wasn't the sort of smallness of the global interconnectivity and you know i think that that we've been able to do that quite a lot because the label's built a, a good name for itself and we have been you know very here's that word again lucky but with the previous caveat um, in working with people like Harvey that also, that obviously gave us a very good shot window because we'd signed Harvey, we're working with Harvey, etc. And what what artists did or do with that spotlight is up to them. And and you know, I think the whole point of making an artrix artist centric label is something that, that the artists have appreciated because they know that I will apply the same level of passion and professionalism and time into them that I will into making my own music or running the business that I ran or that's how I live my life. You know, I believe that whether you, you're a rat catcher or a musician or you clean out the bilges in a submarine, do it with passion or fuck off and do something else. I mean, were those the conditions that kind of got Harvey on board, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the first contact with, with Harvey was the remix for the Roger single. You know, I just thought, okay, so I've got a great song. I'm going to release it myself. I'm going to go into a crowded marketplace. What can I do to make it stand out? Well, I can get, um, I can get Yuko Kwondo, who's a respected Japanese illustrator and, and is friendly with Phantom. I can get him to hand draw this map. Um, okay what else can I do and you kind of have a wish list you know all right who, who could I get to remix it could I get Jan Hammer well maybe not could I get Shep Pepio maybe not could I get Harvey well maybe not but fuck it I'm gonna try and I did and I and, and I and I you know I got him and I got him by making an offer via email that was respectful and sensible and then following that up talking to Heidi his manager you know, in a way, and again, a professional way, and, and a way that didn't take the piss and didn't say, hey, can you do it for mates rates? You know, I know you've not been in the studio for two or three years. Do you mind going in and paying your own studio engineer and I'll bung you a hundred quid at the end? You can't do that. You know, you can't do that. Certainly can't do that to people like Harvey and you can't do it to anybody. It's not fair to, to, to sort of be that way with anybody, I don't think. I think you've got to be professional and you've got to have this passion that I keep talking about. And so it worked. He said, yeah, let's do the remix. And then, you know, once that single had, had done pretty well, you know, I remember being told by a lot of PRs that you'd sell 200 copies and only dubstep, dubstep sold over 1,000 copies and it wasn't dubstep, so you better be prepared to take a pretty big fall on this. And it did sell and it sold really well. And it kind of created the label. And I thought, okay, what's next? Well, let's offer Harvey a three-single deal. And everybody said, oh, yeah. 
you know, I don't understand in life, just in general, why don't people just ask? You know, people mumble into their shirt sleeves or people kind of look at the floor or don't want to be direct. Maybe it's just, you know, I'm a blunt northern <laughs> person. Um, but I just believe you just ask. You know, if, you, if there's something you don't know in life and you want to know, ask somebody. And so I asked and I said, you know, Harvey, do you want to do this? And he said, yeah, it's great. And I don't claim that it was because the deal, you know, there wasn't uncut blood diamonds shipped across the Pacific with 89 nubile wenches that were actually mermaids in disguise. And it, I think a lot of life is timing, whether it's me meeting a hotel manager and buying an iPod, me meeting a publisher when I'm literally a week away from destitution, or me starting a label and impressing Harvey with its professionalism and passion at the same time as him wanting to get back into the studio because his green card situations were getting resolved in the States. And I think timing is 99% of everything. And I think the time was just right for him and it worked very well for both of us. And it is working very well for both of us. How did the rest of the roster come together? Kind of, it just, a bit like the consultancy business, it just happened. You know, was it Jung called it synchronicity? I call it universal flow where, you know, stuff good, you know, if you put your best foot forward and in inverted covers travel, hopefully good stuff just happens. And I really think that that's how the universe functions. And I'm sure that comment will draw a lot of bullshitty stuff around it. And I don't really care. That's how my life happens. If I keep a positive state of mind, I travel, hopefully, I expect good things to happen, then good things will happen. And and that's how my adult life has pretty much gone. And so the label just kind of grew. You know, I knew Gatto Frito because he'd done a remix on the Rocher. And then all of a sudden you've signed Harvey. So everybody else wants to be on your label. So you're getting more demos he can shake a shitty stick at. Um, and most of them are shitty, but the occasional gem, but you've got to out of respect for people that have taken the time to send it to you, listen to them. That's kind of a prerequisite I would always have. And I do get sent a lot of demos, and maybe I only listen to two minutes of it, but I think you've got to have the respect to listen to it. Um, and, and and everything just happened. You know, I, I approached Matt and Joel um, from Quiet Village um, because that album had really resonated with me when I was first in Uruguay, driving along the coast roads at the end of the summer, so all the... Buenos Arians had gone home, thank God. Um, but the weather was still great. You know, that kind of album they did for K7, just sort of blaring that out of a car stereo. So I really wanted to work with them. And so they developed the Maxi and Zeus kind of s sort of sub-personas, which they all already had from DJing anyway. And, and everything else just kind of came together very synchronously. And, and all of a sudden you've got a label and all of a sudden... You thought you were going to do three or four releases a year and, and kind of be slightly cool by limiting, you know, the supply and demand. And all of a sudden, you're doing a vinyl release every month on your own. And you're as busy as you were when you were doing the music consultancy. And, and, it's, and it gets slightly bizarre. And then three years pass very quickly and you find that you've done 36 releases and you can't quite believe it. 
do you feel as though the compilation released towards the end of last year was kind of drawing a line under the last uh, three years or however long it was? I'm I'm still a little bit in shock that, that Resident Advisor thought there were five better compilations last year. No. Um, yes, you know, I kind of got to the point last Easter where it felt, again, you know, we've we've talked throughout this conversation about the synchronicity or the flow of life you know sort of saying it's time to go it's time to move on and it was time to leave uruguay and so we came to ibiza and started looking around for a place to live there because it had all the benefits that we enjoyed in uruguay but it was a lot closer to europe and the compilation just seemed like a very natural thing to do to kind of say okay let's make a great balearic mixtape let's make a document retrospectively to the label and let's also put on there some of the rare stuff, you know, because I, you know, rightly or wrongly, I I did things like the Adventure Party release, um, that, where there were only fifty copies or seventy copies, and and they started going for crazy prices on discography, and part of me really loves that. I really love the fact that when I grew up and I was listening to pop music, the pop stars were untouchable. You know, and there was smoke and mirrors and there was subterfuge and there was cleverness in how they were presented and marketed. Um, today, everything's a little bit too accessible. And people, you know, I think people actually want that that mysticism a little bit and that untouchability back. And that's what, part of what I tried to do with the label and with a couple of releases like the Adventure Party and the Parada 88. I actually made a very for me important anti-consumeristic statement that one writer figured out what i was doing which was to basically say we created a very collectible label and so people were very completist about getting everything that we did now if i release a white label that's hand stamped with 30 copies there's going to be a lot of pissed off uncompletist people and you know the parada thing was released and it caused a little riot in a record shop in japan with people trying to get hold of copies and because Japan's been very, very good for us in terms of buying everything in, in large quantities. And and so the, the compilation was really just a point of saying, okay, you know, we had our little fun, but let's make these available now. It's 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 good to because they're great tracks. The bizarre thing was I you know, those super limited releases, I probably picked two of the things that would have been the biggest releases or, or some of the biggest releases on the label. Um to, to actually sort of make hyper unavailable, which is a bit bizarre, but I kind of, you know, the perverse part of me kind of quite likes that. So the, the compilation is, I think, a great introduction to the label. It's a great way to get a completist approach to the label if you missed out on some stuff. And hopefully, you know, it's something that you can just put on in the car or at a party and it'll work as a Balearic mixtape to show you the scope of the label. Have you been, uh, would you say, or it was fair to say that you've been keeping a low profile of sorts in terms of press? Yes, I think that was a deliberate decision. You know, I think firstly on a professional level, what I mean by professional, I mean in terms of the label. Um, when everybody else is is seeking press and shouting from the top of the Facebook skyscrapers, me, 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 it's actually quite a subversive and clever thing 
to actively not cut the you know to actually not go in that direction because then you're in competition i'm always reminded of what heidi says about harvey where she says all that laissez-faire attitude takes a hell of a lot of work you know so there's a part of that and then the second part on a personal level is that while everybody is shouting me 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 go to my soundcloud look at my sausage waveform listen to me playing with three plugins that i don't know how to use an uncompressor i don't know how to work and putting together some sampled loops in acid or ableton look me 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 i'm on facebook i'm on twitter i actively seek anonymity not because i'm some kind of weird howard hughes-esque recluse that surrounds myself with people to cut my nails and roll my spliffs or anything but but i that's just who i am today i know i'm not i'm not gonna look too deeply about why i am like that and as i said as we were talking before this started you know i come to berlin or i go to see my parents in sheffield and it's a little strange to see this voluptuous incredibly bizarre consumerist society in these homogenized cities that we've created for ourselves you know i live now in the north of ibiza with a lot of land around me and i lead a pretty simple life when we left uruguay we gave away 80 percent of everything we own and it was one of the most liberating things i've ever done in my life everything we own now be that a music studio or a pair of jeans or a piece of vinyl fits into four or five big suitcases you know whereas before we had a, a couple of places out in uruguay and they were chock full and everything got given away either to friends or to charities or, or whatever it is and i just seek a very simple life and how i curate or how i present the label to the world is obviously deeply influenced by how I feel as an individual because you can't detach them and you know I don't care for Facebook although I use it I don't care for Twitter you know I don't care for buying the latest clothes anymore or the latest vinyls or making sure I'm on the right promo lists you know I'm quite content to lead a pretty quiet life in in the sort of hills of northern Ibiza and and you know and and swim a little bit and make music and watch a bit of cricket and listen to audiobooks i listen to far more audiobooks than i do music maybe because after 20 years i prefer the sound of silence than you know the, the sound of a 909 um and and so you know part of the mystique comes from that that personal desire for solitude you know everybody's looking outside clothes shops big neon signs synthesizer plugins twitter facebook i am an absolute strong believer that the, the, the human journey is a journey within the journey to 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 find inner solace the journey to find self-love and self-acceptance and self-worth because if you find all of those and you get that inner tranquility and that inner serenity then everything else can come from that and that's not me you know going to ibiza and, and wearing dreadlocks and and, and tie-dyeing my ass you know that comes from 40 plus years of living and having a very varied and multiple life experienced life and where i am today is that I, I i enjoy making music i'm still obsessed by music technology um i'm less inclined in the next 12 months to run the label as a label for other people and i'm more inclined 
to run it as a label for my own releases. Uh, you know, I've sneaked a lot of my own stuff in there under different names with different backstories that sometimes the Philip Sherbans of this world figure out. Um, you know, but I really am, I, I really want to just focus on making music at the minute and, and leading a, a quiet life and continuing to curate the label. Thank <laughs> you.